Welcome once again to Radio In Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community here on WCOMLP Chapel Hill in Carborough. This is Ernie Hood. I am a freelance science writer, and each week here on the program, we bring you cutting-edge information about what's going on in science here in the Triangle area, one of the world's leading hubs of scientific research, development, and innovation. You can email us at radioinvivo at earthlink.net, and you can access a full archive of our hundreds of past programs over the past 13 years at radioinvivo.net. The Burroughs Welcome Fund is a Golden Voices underwriter here on WCOM and Radio in Vivo. The Burroughs Welcome Fund supports excellence in science education across North Carolina. The fund believes that providing students with engaging and interactive curriculum helps to spark curiosity for careers in science, mathematics, and technology. You can learn about education grant opportunities for North Carolina schools and teachers at www.bwfund.org. Radio and Vivo is underwritten by Chapel Hill Eye Care, located at 235 South Elliott Road in Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill Eye Care provides comprehensive eye care to people of all ages. Healthy Eyes for a Lifetime, Chapel Hill Eye Care, 919-968-4774. Radio In Vivo is also underwritten by the Triangle Center for Evolutionary Medicine, or TRISEM, a nonprofit center exploring the intersection of evolutionary science and medicine. TRISEM is jointly operated by Duke University, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, North Carolina State University, and North Carolina Central University. TRISAM is an incubator that promotes innovative developments in the theory and practice of evolutionary medicine by fostering cross-disciplinary collaborations among triangle-based scholars, physicians, public health workers, and more. Radio in Vivo is supported by NC State University's Genetic Engineering and Society, or GES Center. The GES Center is shaping the futures of biotechnology by integrating scientific knowledge and public values. Now live streaming weekly colloquia. For more information, visit go.ncsu.edu slash GES or follow the center on Twitter at GES Center and enter NCNU. Finally, Radio in Vivo is underwritten by Gene Centric Therapeutics, Incorporated of Chapel Hill, Research Triangle Park, excuse me. Gene Centric is pioneering the advanced classification of cancers for more effective drug development and more accurate diagnosis and treatment of patients through its core technology, the Cancer Subtype Platform. More information is available at genecentric.com. WCOM and Radio and Vivo thank this terrific group of underwriters for their support. Microbial communities are ubiquitous in all environments on Earth that support life. So wrote my guest on Radio and Vivo this week, and that blanket statement includes everywhere from our guts to the soil beneath our feet. Dr. Manuel Kleiner is exploring the microbial world in all of its many settings. He has already made some important discoveries in the field and is poised to make many more with the high-tech tools and equipment at his disposal. 
Dr. Manuel Kleiner is an assistant professor in the Department of Plant and Microbial Biology at North Carolina State University. He is also a member of the Chancellor's Faculty Excellence Program Cluster on Microbiomes and Complex Microbial Communities. He received his Ph.D. from the Max Planck Institute for Marine Microbiology in Bremen, Germany in 2012. After his postdoctoral pursuits, he joined the NC State faculty in 2017. Manuel Kleiner, welcome to Radio In Vivo. Hello, and thank you for having me. Manuel, the question uh, I often start these conversations with is about how you ended up working in the arena where you find yourself today. What can you tell us about your journey? Oh, well, it involved quite a bit of serendipity, I would say. I started out, actually I have, I started out studying design a long, long time ago. I wanted to be a photographer, <laughs> so it's going very far back. Um, but very quickly I, I found that that was not for me and I really was more interested in natural sciences. So I, I went and got a degree, a five-year degree in, in biology at a at the University of Greifswald in Eastern Germany. So I have a diploma in biology from there. And afterwards I actually spent a year abroad at the um, Indiana University in Bloomington doing a research abroad year. And then I went to do my PhD at the Max Planck Institute in, in Bremen, which you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I got a degree in marine microbiology or PhD from there. I then went on um, to Dallas. I spent some time at UT Southwestern Medical Center with Laura Hooper. Learned a lot about bacteriophages and viruses that live in the intestinal tract of mammals. And then um, from there, I went to Calgary in Alberta to do a, a three-year postdoc with Mark Strauss in, uh, at the University of Calgary. And after that very long journey through many places, then I came to NC State a year and a half ago. And And scientifically, how did you evolve into the uh, the pursuits that you find yourself in today? Um, so I started out studying biology. I wanted to actually go more into like um, environmental work. That was really what I wanted. But very quickly when I did my, you know, in the first two years, started learning about microbiology. I didn't actually know much about it. And I, I felt this particular topic was really, really exciting. I never knew that what all the different things that microbes can actually do and all the important roles they play in our, in our environment and in our health. So I got very, very interested in that. And very quickly it became clear to me that I really was you know, going to, do, to be a researcher. You had found yourself. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so, so in, in, in Kreiswald I was in a laboratory that was very big on working with pure cultures of microbes in a laboratory. And I was planning to join a laboratory, but I really was actually more interested in studying microbes in the, in the wild, right, in their natural habitats. So, um, so I started doing some intern. I had like a was pretty quick with my coursework, so I had some time left over, and I started doing internships in different institutions. And so I also went to the Max Planck Institute in Bremen to to learn about bioinformatics. So I spent three three months there, and the nice thing at the time was I had like a little apartment in the institute itself. So at night I was roaming the institute and like at 11 at night I met my future PhD advisor in, in one of the tea kitchens that I have there. We started conversing. Mm -hmm. I'm coming from Kreisdorf. We had very spe specific methods there that, that she really wanted to use. And so we came up with a plan to how we could collaborate and work together in the future. So, so that was, for example, one of these pieces of serendipity where I met this 
my, my future advisor in, in the tea kitchen in the middle of the night in an wow. empty institute. <laughs> that, that, that type of story is so, so common among you know, people that end up in a particular field. Uh, it's not always a, a, a plan from uh, the high school years on. Yes, I would definitely second that. There's, there's, I have actually never met any scientist that could really like credibly tell me a very clear path. I, you know, after high school, I knew I wanted to be a researcher and I did these things to get there. No, I have never met that. It's always like there's all kinds of a lot of coincidences that happen along the way and things that, that put us on a different path. But ultimately, we, we end up somewhere where we're usually happy. And that, that's half the fun, I imagine. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, well, Manuel, a very broad question for you about microbes. Could life on Earth even exist at all without microbes? That's a good question. I actually recently read an article thinking about that um, by, by several researchers. I unfortunately don't remember the citation. But yes, those research came to the conclusion that you know plant and animal life would immediately you know pr you know stop existing on Earth within a few days. Wow! If if microbial life disappeared, right? We rely so heavily on the microbes for 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 like multicellular life. The microbes were here first, right? So they actually paved the planet for us. They made it habitable for for high uh, for for multicellular life. Like I mean, initially. No multicellular life could have existed. There was no oxygen, things like that. Sure. Well, microbes bring us a, a lot of good, as you've described, but they also do a lot of harm, don't they? Uh, um, yes, they do. Microbes can cause disease. And in the past, the, the, the disease-causing role has been highlighted a lot because that's what ob immediately is obvious and where we really recognize that they are there and they're doing something. I would argue, though, that, that the beneficial roles are much more prevalent and they're much more important. Without them, we would ag not even exist, right? So, yes, the microbe can cause disease and kill a person, but life itself is completely dependent on, on microbial life being there. So, so I think, you know, and I think I, I'm, I'm seeing a shift here, and I think a lot of my colleagues see a shift that, you know, in the past it really was focused on disease-causing microbes. And in the last 10 years, I would say we're really starting to see more and more of this Microbiome, microbiomes focused research. We're seeing that you know microbes are really critical for our survival. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, final kind of uh, general question: Do you think it's likely that one day we will discover life on other worlds in the form of microbes? Well, that's one of my favorite topics to think about, even though I do, know, do, do not do any research in the realm of like origins of life and life throughout the universe. I mean, there's uh, many arguments in favor, I would say, saying that, you know, that we should be finding life elsewhere. For example, I mean, when we think about when life originated on Earth 3.7 billion years ago, it was really very, very shortly after the planet became inhabitable, right? It was very shortly after the big bombardment started stopping, the planet cooled down. Immediately we see the origin of life. So, but we only have a sample of one, right? So we don't really know. I mean, it seems it's very quick to arrive, but of course it could be a total coincidence. Yeah. But then also there's a lot of research in, on, on a theory which is called the panspermia hypothesis or theory that um, you know, life could actually travel between planets or even solar systems, you know? And so there has been actually a lot of research where Researchers try to understand if, if life can be expelled by a meteorite impact from on a, on a habitable planet 
the life could be expelled in kind of rocks and then travel to other planets and, and, and actually inoculate it. And I, I would actually think, so, and this, these researchers argue that actually we, if one planet in a solar system has life, it very quickly should contaminate the whole solar system, you know, quickly in like talking about millions of years. But sure. so if we actually went to Europa, which is, you know, the moon of Jupiter, which, ha which has a lot of water under like a crust of ice, the expectation would be that we should be finding microbial life in the ocean under the crust. But, you know, that's very, very speculative, and it's my personal opinion. But I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about these topics, for sure. Absolutely. Well, well, you should be. I, I bet that within next maybe 10 years, we, we will have that headline, it particularly potentially from Europa, as you say. Yes. But we'll, we'll see. Yes. <laughs> well, um, Manuel, what are the, the currently the major knowledge gaps in your field? Um, you know, some of which I'm sure are, are the ones that you're, you're working on. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's a big question. It's a big question. Yes. I <laughs> so mean, we'll, we'll drill down into your work, not to worry. Okay. Um, the biggest knowledge gaps. Well, so, so the, I mean, there have been researchers for more than 100 years that have actually looked at m how microbes interact beneficially with, with, with animals and plants, right? We, for example, know about the nitrogen-fixing symbionts of of legumes, we know about um, for the a famous example is the squid that has a, like a luminous organ and it has like little bacteria inside that actually produce the light. So some examples have been very carefully studied, but usually it's like one or two partner associ associations. Now we are in this realm, and there has been a lot of research in the last ten years, I would say, on these microbiomes, where we start to understand it's not just you know these individual two partner, three partner associations that we have, but we have these associations where we have hundreds of different species associated, sometimes loosely associated, and we are not sure, you know, how many beneficial interactions, how many neutral interactions where they just hang out together, how many antagonistic interactions we have in these types of more complex settings like right, the, the, the plant in the soil, the root interacts a lot with hundreds, thousands of different of species. And we only start to see, yes, there are specific microbes that start associating with the roots, they colonize the roots, but we, we're very unclear of, of the effects, right? And, and so that's true not only for plants, it's also true for animals. Where in, in, in particular in mammals, we have learned a little more by now because there's of course have been a big interest from the health side of things, mm -hmm. but still, we, we're still at the very beginning, I think. So you, you've got plenty to chew on. Yes, for sure. <laughs> We're not going to run out of research anytime soon. Well, Emmanuel, I want to explore your scientific pursuits in detail over the course of our time together. And perhaps a good starting point is to ask you to discuss what you have learned about the world of microbial communities that people might find surprising or shocking or disturbing. Oh, um, we have learned a lot of things. I mean, one example I could give where, like, where we found something very unexpected from, from my PhD work, for example, was I was working on little marine worms. So the, these marine worms, they live in the sediment, they live in the sand, all, everywhere across the planet. I studied them specifically from a site in the Mediterranean, really nice site on the island of Elba in Italy. Nice. So, <laughs> so I was studying these worms, and the, the special thing about these worms is they have no digestive system. They have no mouth. They cannot take up any food, per se, right? So instead, 
of eating, they actually have a huge bacterial community right under the outer skin. It's, and it's a very specific community. It's just five different bacteria, sometimes four different bacteria. Mm -hmm. And these bacteria use inorganic compounds to pr produce all the nutrition for, for, for the host animal, right? They use poisonous sulfide. They use it as an energy source. And then they use carbon dioxide and they make organic substrates and in this way feed the host. Um, and so this system had, you know, this particular worm from Elba had been studied for quite a while to better understand on how a, you know, how a, such a closed system really works. And we knew that different symbionts, there was actually like a little cycle of um, cycling of sulfur compounds going on within the worm. So the thing, different symbionts were doing different jobs along, you know, how to, to change the sulfur components. And... Um, but so that was always in the system. What we really did not know is what is actually the external source of energy that drives this whole system, right? What are the worms actually getting from the outside that then drives the symbionts? Because in the particular habitat where the worms live, there was not much of this reduced sulfur compounds that usually would drive these types of symbiosis. Mm -hmm. So in my PhD work, we, we, we used an approach that was very agnostic where we like we used what we call metaproteomics to look at all the different proteins and functions that are expressed in the symbionts. So what are they actually doing, trying to understand all the different processes they, they do. And we found that they actually some of the symbionts can use carbon monoxide, which is a highly poisonous gas, as a source of energy. And we were like completely baffled, baffled at the time, right? We had no idea, we had never suspected that carbon monoxide could be present in these sediments and that it could play any role in the symbiosis. So once we had this finding, then we actually went and did all kinds of, of testing. We, we checked the sediments, we found carbon monoxide is there, and we actually did experiments with the worms where we actually saw they take it up and they increased their um, fixation of carbon dioxide. So that was like one of these, you know, never expected kind of shocking results we got. I see, well, that is fascinating. Uh, it strikes me that that particularly is a, is a very unusual uh, phenomenon, that type of symbiosis. Uh, it seems like it's, it's out of the blue in a way. You mean the symbiosis using carbon monoxide or the, the, the whole concept of uh, symbiosis? Both, really. Um, one has to wonder, how, how did something, a system like that evolve? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. But the, the symbiosis, these particular types of symbiosis are not very unusual, right? Or at least, if it, you know, we th maybe think about them as unusual because they're so far away from what we can do. We could never lift just from our symbionts and using poisonous compounds, right? Right. But um, so we call these symbiosis chemosynthetic symbiosis, and we find them all across the marine realm. We find it in clams, we find it in tube worms, we find it in snails. There's all kinds of different of animals that actually have some type of symbiont that, that uses these inorganic compounds to produce uh, nutrition for them. So it's, it's very common. They're in the deep sea, at mm -hmm. hydrothermal vents, then shallow water sediments, they're like, they're everywhere. So it's a very, you know, especially in the marine realm, it's a very common type of symbiosis. So it seems like it would be very important to, to achieve an understanding of those systems. Yes, I mean, and yes, for sure. I mean, it's, it's very interesting to study them because we better understand this the symbiotic systems where we only have a few partners, which makes it easier to actually understand how they interact among each other, the partners. Mm -hmm. But we're also starting to see that at least some of these chemosynthetic symbioses have a huge impact on in important environmental processes. For example, there are small clams, they're called lucinids. They, they associate with seagrass. And seagrass is, is, is very, very critical to, to protect the coast. It is, provides a habitat for, for fish to grow up. And so it's a, like the fish nursery. And so the seagrass 
seems to depend on these little clamps that sit next to their roots to actually remove the poisonous sulfide, which would otherwise kill the seagrass. So, I mean, there's a lot of debate still about this particular process, but there seems to be a larger scale symbiosis where the symbionts in the clam help um, the seagrass ultimately. So, you know, like everything is interconnected and actually has a potentially a large em environmental impact. I see. Well, that, that actually brings us to uh, walking through some of your projects. Uh, that you have currently going on in, in your lab, uh, which will, I think will help us get kind of the big picture of, of what it is you're up to. First of all, Manuel, would you describe a study uh, looking at factors governing energy efficiency of metabolism in free-living and symbiotic bacteria, looking specifically at a novel CO2 pathway? Now, I lifted all that language from your website, but okay. uh, uh, it, it sounds uh, like it's very interesting and ha might have larger implications. Yes, so that particular topic ha you know, has a lot of like, potential for applications. Maybe one point that I could raise here is you know, when, I, when I talk about the worms, you know, some people find it fascinating, but a lot of people actually ask the question, well, why would we care and why would you invest the money and the time to understand these little wheel worms from, from the sediments, right? You know, and there's, of course, you know, a lot of argument why we need basic knowledge and understand these things. But for example, the, the topic that you just raised about carbon fixation pathways and that they're critical, that actually came out of this particular research where I was looking at the symbionts in the worms. Mm -hmm. So what we found in some of these, the symbionts of these worms is that they actually have unusual pathways for carbon fixation. Just to reiterate, carbon fixation is, for example, the process that plants use to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and make all of their body's you know, components, right? So it's, it's really like the primary synthesis, kind of. So, um, and plants use a very specific pathway, which is called the Calvin cycle, and then, but there's many different pathways that can be used. And so in the simians, we found actually that they use the same pathway as the plants, but it's modified. It seems to be more energy efficient. So with less energy, they can make a similar amount of biomass. And so we started finding that in the symbionts, and I started in my research to start look around in other organisms and cultured organisms in all different kinds of habitats. And we started seeing actually this type of a pathway seems to present in all kinds of other free-living bacteria as well. And so now this is one of the research topics that we are now pursuing. We want to better understand how this more energy efficient pathway works because ultimately, you know, of course we are very curious how it works, but ultimately it could also have a biotechnological application where we could use this pathway to increase productivity, for example, in phototrophic bioreactors, which are used to produce biomass, mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. that. So there's, there, there's immediate applications that we can see. I see. That, that's excellent. We certainly will keep an eye on that research because it could, uh, as you say, be quite important down the road. Uh, well, uh, second project that uh, you're working on uh, you're exploring the role of horizontal gene transfer in the metabolic evolution of bacterial symbionts. Uh, tell us more about that project. What is horizontal gene transfer and why is that important? Okay. So, yeah, so, so microorganisms, in particular bacteria and archaea, they can en actually engage in, in a process which we call horizontal gene transfer. So. So there's, and there's different ways they can actually do it, right? So they can pick up new genes from the environment or from other bacteria, or they can sometimes, if, 
if viruses are in, around and infect them, they can just be injected into them. Mm -hmm. But they can then actually take these genes and integrate them into their own genomes and make use of them, right? So that's, for example, a very well-known process that actually leads to the rapid spread of antibiotics resistance in pathogens. Sure. But we... Um, so right where where we have like an antibiotic is applied, one of the microorganisms already has a resistance to the antibiotic, and there's then a process like, for example, conjugation. They can transfer from one cell to the other. They can transfer the genes over, and suddenly more and more species will have the resistance. So that's it's a well-known process. What we are finding now, and a lot of groups are saying this, is when we we are now taking environmental samples from all all kinds of different environments, and we're starting to see a lot of indications that this type of transfer of genes around is really rampant, right? It happens all the time. All microorganisms that we sequence and we look at their genomes, we find evidence they have that they have relatively recently acquired new types of genes that help them adapt to specific environments or mm -hmm. fulfill a new function. And so um, when I, s you know, so there's a, there's a big interest in the general topic of horizontal gene transfer and how it shapes environments and how it helps microbes adapt to new environments and whole communities to adapt and how this exchange actually happens. So one thing that I found when I was looking again at, at, at symbionts in the worm but also in, uh, in other symbiotic systems is that also we see huge amounts of genes where we think that have been acquired recently through horizontal gene transfer and now we want to unravel that a little more by actually not just looking at one worm species from the island of Elba in Italy but really looking all across the globe in similar worms, but many different species, many different locations, many different symbionts to start to really understand how this transfer happens, how, uh, how quickly does it happen, what kind of abilities are acquired and how are they actually acquired, how do these particular symbionts get these genes. Because the symbionts within the worm are of course a little bit locked off from the environment, so they don't have as easy access to fresh DNA as you know, free living bacteria that just can pick up DNA from, from maybe from the water column in the ocean or something. Sure. Well, that, that's absolutely fascinating because I think, a, as you say, people are uh, familiar with the concept of antibiotic resistance and that horizontal genes transfer is involved with that. But the, the idea that it's, it's so much more or common, almost uh, universal uh, in the microbial world uh, sounds pretty, pretty important. Yes, I would, I would definitely think so. And I think... We, we will, yeah, we, it's, it's really important that, you get, we, that we get a much broader picture now of, of how this happens because the, the processes that are involved in antibiotic resistance spreading are in parts well understood, but there's a lot of things that we actually don't know. And there's actually it at NC State, there's quite some research going on in that realm as well. Okay. Do you think that uh, by learning more about that process, uh, there may be ways to, to m intervene in it or manipulate it? Um, maybe, yes. I, I mean, for antibiotic resistance, we have actually already some really good ideas okay. of, of, of why it spreads, right? And, and, and my understanding is limited, so I, you know, don't hold me to it. But sure. for antibiotic resistance, for example, the application in livestock in very large quantities of antibiotics leads to increase in, in, in antibiotic resistance throughout all these facilities. And, you know, so one way to actually prevent it could be to actually use less antibiotics because then uh, overall antibiotics resistance available in as a pool it goes down. Yeah. Things like that. So we have learned a lot like that. Okay, excellent. Uh, you are also developing cutting-edge methods for microbial community analyses, uh, focusing on metagenomics 
and high-end mass spectrometry-based metaproteomics. Uh, now, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but why don't we start by defining metagenomics and metaproteomics? Uh, I'm certainly quite familiar with genomics and proteomics, but uh, what are the meta-versions of those disciplines? Okay, yes. So yeah, so maybe let's start with genomics and proteomics, right? Okay. So what we do in, in, in genomics is we would have a, an organism, pure culture of bacteria or humans, and we would start sequencing the whole genome to better understand what genes are present and what they could potentially be doing, right, with the genes. Sure. Although as long as the genes are not expressed and they're not used, nothing happens, right? So the next step kind of would be we could use proteomics, which is actually a, a method that allows us to actually check which genes are actually produced and expressed and you know, made into proteins that actually then carry out the functions. Um, so that's genomics and, and proteomics. Now it gets much more complicated when we work with our environmental communities, right? One of the problems that we often encounter is that a lot of the organisms we know are there in these communities or live in humans or anywhere, they cannot be cultured, right? Or, we, well, and we, at least we don't know yet how to culture them, right? So we cannot just, you know, take them individually and do these kind of analysis with them. What we actually have to do is we have to take the whole environmental sample and look at it as a whole because we cannot get the individual microbes out. So that's where the meta comes in. We, we then actually take an environmental sample, we take all the DNA out, and we sequence all the genomes that are in this DNA, uh, in, the, in this environmental sample all at once. That's what we call metagenomics. Oh, okay. And then okay. the equivalent to that which is then would be, again, the next step. And there's other methods that can be used, but I mean, of course, I'm most in favor for metaproteomics. The next step would then be, okay, now we know all these microbes are there and they have the potential to use sulfur, they have the potential to fix carbon dioxide, but are they actually doing it, right? So that's where the metaproteomics come in. We actually then use high-end mass spectrometry to identify and quantify thousands and thousands of proteins from these um, environmental communities, and then we can say, well, these proteins are actually expressed, they're very abundant, they actually fulfill a function, so something is happening that relates to these particular genes. So when you do the mass spec and, and get your metaproteomic results, uh, can you correlate the, the individual spikes that you see to individual species? Yes. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the mass spectrometry, we, you know, it's, you know, it's a quite a tr complicated method, right? It, takes me roughly six months to train people in my laboratory to really fully understand it and, and, and execute the whole experiment. Um, so, but yes, so what we do is in, in this high-end mass spectrometry, we actually acquire like 40,000, 60,000 individual mass fingerprints per hour for each sample. And we sometimes run, you do this for eight hours for just one sample, right? So we get a lot, a lot of information. And we can actually, in many cases, not in all cases, we can relate the individual protein that we see back to the original organism, right? Because usually we rely on having already done some metagenomic work beforehand. We have looked at the metagenomes. We have mm -hmm. sorted the genes into different categories. Well, this is from species one, this is species two. Okay. And we use that same information then to do the metaproteomics on top of that. So we usually know so which species. So you got a roadmap to go by, basically. Yes, yes. Okay, that's well, excellent. Although there's a lot of need for development, right? But yes, we have a kind of, a, for basic experiments, we have a roadmap, yeah. Wonderful. Well, uh, I understand that you actually recently acquired your own mass uh, spectrometry device. Um, Kind of, right? It's it's basically when I was hired 
I was brought in with a mass spectrometer, it's housed in a central facility so that if I ever don't use it, it could be used also by other right, users so around it's in campus. A, in a core yeah, it's in a, in a core facility. It's a quite an ex expensive piece of equipment. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Well, it's great to have access to something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we, we use it, all, currently we use it almost nonstop, but it's, it's housed in this new, we have this new metric facility on campus at NC State where all the large-scale instrumentation is brought together to make it available to more people. I see. Yeah, that, that's pretty exciting to be able to access something like that at the scale that you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Manuel, also in your lab, you're working on development and evaluation of metaproteomic methods for root-associated microbes uh, in a pro project sponsored by the Plant Soil Microbial Community Consortium. Yes. or PSMCC, as we will refer to it. Uh, tell us more about that project. Okay. So, well, maybe let me start by saying that, you know, these metaproteomics approaches, they're very new, right? So the first time this was ever mentioned in the literature is 2004. And at the time, the approaches were very, very basic. Um, so we have seen a lot of development in, in recent years in that realm, right? We have gotten huge jumps in, I would call it almost quantum leaps in technology that we have available to do these kinds of analysis. And the informatics tools. And, and the bioinformatics, the mass spectrometers. Like we have, I mean, it's incredible how the technology has evolved in like the last 10 years. It's, it's mind boggling yeah. uh, what we can do now. But that actually means that only very recently people have really started to, you know, we just, in, uh, basically initially we started out just doing proteomics, trying to apply it to environmental communities, and that worked a little bit, but we found very quickly that there's all kinds of things you have to consider that are different when you work with these much more complex and diverse samples. So we saw a lot of need for, for developing approaches, and there's a few groups now around the world that are doing this. Um, and so one, one of the particularly difficult habitats was always considered like soil and plant roots because they're highly diverse. There's a lot of interfering compounds. So it's, you know, it's like kind of the, this is the biggest challenge if you can address it. I mean, the soil is the biggest challenge, but plant roots and rhizospheres, the, everything associated with plant roots is also considered a very big challenge. So when I came to NC State, I was actually not, you know, I wasn't really uh, working with plants yet. But I mean, very cl quickly it became clear that there's a lot of very interesting questions in the realm of, of looking at, uh, at interactions between microbiomes and plants and all the things they can do. There's a huge amount of research effort going on in RTP. There's a lot of interest from company side, but also a lot of researchers at NC State that have that interest. But we didn't have the tools, for example, to look at functional interactions between the microbes and the plant. So when I saw the call from the PSMCC that they're looking, you know, to any kind of research in the realm of microbiomes and plants and soils. I very quickly thought, oh, we should really start try to try to develop these approaches where we can then look more at functional interactions in these plant microbiomes. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I was very fortunate. Actually, I just had hired a postdoc, like, you know, by, by mere chance that, you know, I, ha I was uh, very lucky that I actually was able to hire such a fantastic postdoc. She's, she already had experience with mass spectrometry and doing proteomics on plants. So she was, you know, I had the grant came in and the postdoc came in and it was perfect for, you know, actually starting this type of work. Okay. And so uh, what, what are you uh, looking at uh, in this area? So, um, well, we have very quickly increased. I mean, I would never have thought that we would be starting to do all this different research in the realm of plant microbiomes. So what we started out with is what I like to do is when we develop new approaches, 
I like to have a fully controlled system where I know exactly what went in and what we should be seeing when it comes out because oftentimes otherwise we cannot identify any artifacts or problems, right? Sure. But if we know exactly what went in, we know, oh, it just didn't come back out, so something went wrong here or something comes out that shouldn't be in there. We know, is there a contamination or is our approach just giving us false results? Yeah. So I started working with, with different researchers to acquire different plant microbe systems that we can use that are fully controlled. So I'm... I have a researcher at, um, working with Xu Jin Hu at NC State. He has like he works with switchgrass that has one bacterium and one fungus inside. Then from we acquired from a research group in, in Harvard, we acquired corn, and we have a, a community of seven microbial species that we can grow in the lab, which can in, in colonize the corn. So we can use this particular community to do a lot of experimentation. And then I also started to work with Jeff Daniels group at uh, UNC here. And um, they actually have a system where they have Arabidopsis plants and they have up to 200 different microbes they can use to mix all kinds of different communities. So we have a whole range of very simple to very complex microbial systems, plant microbe systems, where we can really do experimentation and challenge our methods to the limit. I see. Very good. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, RTP area uh, folks that uh, would find your work of great interest. Uh, is it something that ultimately could contribute to to ag biotech, which, you know, obviously this area is a, a, a central location for that type of uh, uh, commercial activity? Well, so so the PSMCC is, is an industry partnership with NC State. So the money comes from industry, and actually the industry partners participate in selecting the proposals. So, you know, the guess would be, yes, they saw the proposal and clearly thought it was worth their time and effort. And I have actually talked to some of these industry members and, they, you know, they, they were very excited to see if we could actually pull this off and actually get these methods to work. They, you know, they had, had their doubts that, you know, but they were very, very interested in seeing if it works. And if it works, they have a very large interest because they have a lot of, I think, uh, research questions that would actually benefit from having these methods at hand to really be so because when they when they develop any type of a product oftentimes they have to also know what the mechanism is so they can justify it and so you know our approach certainly would help looking at that okay well i i saw on the website uh, the consortium's website uh, that they have also backed another of your collaborative projects on high throughput screening for genes to improve performance of crop plant microbiomes using functional genomics. Uh, that sounds very important for crop science. Yes. So yeah, that was just now very, very recently found. And that it's a, actually a colleague of mine, Nathan Crook. He's actually with me in the microbiomes cluster at NC State. Mm -hmm. So he's in, in the College of Engineering. And um, yes, so you know he will be leading the research. We'll actually contribute to this particular project because we have this corn system with a synthetic seven-member community in the lab already all it's all working, and so, so the research that um, Nathan is will, will be doing is to see if we, um, well, how how do I say that right? So he has a new approach that we call he calls functional metagenomics, where he can actually test all kinds of different genes and what effect they have on microbial community members and how they can colonize plants. Because it's a very big question right now is, you know 
we know sometimes we have a microbe in the lab, it has a beneficial effect on a plant, you put it on a seed, you put it in a field and nothing happens because the native community outcompetes it. So mm -hmm. we don't mm -hmm. have a good understanding on how colonization really works and how it can potentially be improved to actually get the beneficial members to be better colonizers. So, so this um, work will be looking into that realm. That, uh, again, that sounds like it could be a very important development if you can develop the m methods and uh, to pull that off, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm very optimistic. I mean, Nathan has a lot of experience in that particular realm. Excellent. Uh, well, before we move on, Manuel, tell us more about this Plant Soil Microbial Community Consortium that we've been talking about. Where, where did this uh, consortium come from, and, and what, what are they trying to do? Okay, so you ask, yeah, so I, I'm not, you know, I don't know the full history because it was pr conceived long before I came to NC State, so it's none of my doing, right? Okay. So, but there is a, is another group on, on campus, is the Center for Integrated Fungal Research, and I think it was conceived there, and they made it happen, right? They found industry partners, and they, they really thought that this particular topic is so critical, there should mm -hmm. be a research effort where industry can actually interact more with NC State researchers. Some several industry partners signed on. They're contributing a certain amount of money every year. And with that, they actually are directly involved in looking at all the proposals in the proposal selection process. And what I have actually come to learn, it's a little known fact, but you know, they, they not only select the proposals, but they also get to see the whole portfolio of ideas that are around. You know, they have the opportunity to actually start interacting with certain research directly, even if the proposal doesn't get funded. So, I, you know, I, I feel that it's it's a good it's beneficial for all partners involved for sure that, that sounds like a, a wonderful example of a really productive uh public private partnership i, th for, I think so for science yeah and if there's you know and Me megan andrews is the the, the, the the contact partner for that particular effort I, at nc state i see excellent you are listening to radio in vivo and my guest today is dr manuel kleiner from nc state and we are talking about his groundbreaking work in the world of microbes. Uh, Manuel, let's now delve into, uh, I think it's your most recent publication, uh, or at least one of your most recent publications, which first brought you and your work to my attention. Uh, you have now turned to the human gut microbiome, which, as you uh, described earlier, is, is such a hot topic these days. Tell us about your efforts to document what our intestinal microbes actually like to eat. Oh, okay. I see. So yeah, we have not really published it yet. So what happened is we actually got it funded. So we're really excited to have the money to do the research. But we recently published a paper where we show a method that will enable us to do this kind of work. Okay. So we recently developed, a, you know, with collaborators, many people involved, we developed a new approach that allows us to track what substrates individual microbial species in, in complex communities actually consume. So we can really follow the carbon. And so this, uh, this approach is again a, is a metaproteomics approach where we use high-end mass spectrometry. And this whole approach relies on the fact that, that, for ex that different elements have different isotopes, right? We have heavy and light isotopes, for example, of carbon. We have carbon-12 and carbon-13, and they're always present in the environment. But different carbon substrates or food, food compounds or dietary components have some slightly different signatures in terms of what isotopes are in there. And we have now developed an approach where we can say very, very, very accurately de 
determine which species in a microbial community has what kind of a signature. And we can, of course, also use dietary components and look at their signature, and so we can actually make a relationship between the two. So we have, for the first time, really an approach where we can very directly link the carbon substrates with the consumers. Um, Mm-hmm. Because uh, and so now this so so we developed the method we published it really nicely I think PNAS so it was a it was a good journal um, so we were really excited about it but in then thinking about what we could do with this method it really sh- you know m- one of my first thoughts was we can now really start directly addressing the linkage between our th- the food that we eat and the microbes in the intestinal tract that actually benefit from it in some way. And, you know, that's a very, very critical question because we have a much better understanding now that the microbiota, all the microbial species that live in our intestinal tract, have a huge impact on our health, right? They could cause disease, but oftentimes they're actually very beneficial for us. You know, we think about probiotics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do you actually influence this particular community? Um, And so um, that's how we, when we developed this particular proposal to use our approaches to really track the food, the individual dietary components and see which microbes consume them. So uh, do you see that uh, tailoring the human diet to the needs of uh, the microbiota uh, could have a therapeutic effect? Do you, do you see that type of impact from this work ultimately? Yes, I, mean, I think most definitely we'll see a lot of this, right? So in the, the particular grant that I obtained actually requires some industry matching funds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have been going around and have talked to quite a few companies and I, I have learned that there's actually a, a huge number of um, members of industry that actually have personalized nutrition programs, therapeutic uh, nutrition programs, you know, r- trying to develop all kinds of, of diets or dietary supplements that actually have a direct impact on the microbiota and influence it in one way or the other. So I think we'll see a lot of that in the future where where people eat like prebiotics, like compounds that actually directly impact the microbiotas. And what what is the potential impact on uh, on disease or disorders? For, you know, uh, what comes to mind immediately is uh, obesity, for example, or gastrointestinal disorders. Uh, or even metabolic disorders like diabetes. Yes. Well, I mean, we already, you know, know a lot about the nutritional aspects without even looking at the microbiota. And, you know, if you eat certain foods, you're more likely to be obese. But, you Indeed. know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> a, not an expert in that field. So um, what we um, do not really know oftentimes is, well, there's two cases where, where for example, we could use these approaches where it could be very beneficial. We know that some microbes have actually beneficial effects and they could be used as probiotics for cert- to treat certain conditions. But oftentimes when you eat these probiotics, they very quickly, you know, they go in, they do their job, but they very quickly get lost. So mm-hmm. then you have to eat more of it because they, don't, they are not able to persist in, because there's already a native community around. So if we could actually help those microbes along to persist longer and do their, do their job in the intestinal tract, that could be helpful. But the same is also true for diseases. There's some, you know, infect, infectious diseases. For example, a colleague of mine at NC State is working on Clostridium difficile infections that cause like a terrible inflammation. Mm, yeah, C. diff. Uh, yeah, C. diff and infl- yeah, infections. Mm-hmm. And for example, understanding, and she works a lot on actually on trying to understand what they do and what they consume in the intestinal tract. And so, so this approach could, for example, pr- you know, ha- has the potential to also help better understand what C. diff consumes. What, what beneficial microbes that might suppress C. diff consume in the intestinal tract and, you know, really try to steer a diet so that, you know, hopefully 
along with other treatments, that the infection can be contained better. Do you, do you think down the road that you, your approach that you're describing uh, could lead to the development of new dietary supplements or probiotics uh, as an outcome of this new knowledge that you will acquire? Well, so yes, but so what we are doing right now, we're in such an early stage where we even, you know, we, we are doing currently, we're looking at very basic dietary components. And our idea is that, you know, in a, within a year or two years from now, we will actually be able to hopefully collaborate with other researchers and also industry to actually test more specifically compounds of interest. But right now we're looking at simple things like different types of protein, lipids, starches, fiber, because, you know, even that is not really, it, there's some understanding of how it works, more from indirect observation of how the microbiota membership changes when you change your diet. Mm -hmm. But we can now really directly look at it. But yes, the, the tool is definitely there to also drive that type of research that you just described. I see. So this, this uh, falls into the category, and I, I think I saw it in some of your, your material of you are what you eat, and that it's really quite true. Yes, for sure. For sure, we can, you know, we can directly relate the isotopic signatures of the the food to the microbes, so they're clearly what they are, what they, they are, what they eat, and we, that's the same is actually true for humans or any animals. We can very easily relate easily relate their isotopic signatures back to the the whole food sources. And that this is really new methodology that you you have uh, developed in the metaproteomics. Yes. Realm. Yes, so yeah, the, the, the ability to look at complex communities and, you know, look at the 100 species all at the same time and say what the isotopic signatures is, is what is new. Anthropologists have used similar approaches in the past to, for example, look at archaeological human specimens to determine what the isotopic signatures were and then say, well, they must have been eating a lot of wheat, right, kind of because of the correlation between the signatures. But it's really just looking at individuals and not at like very complex samples where we cannot t tease it apart who the sample actually came from, from where the proteins actually came. I see. So, uh, Manuel, with this, this knowledge that uh, you will be developing uh, as you uh, put these tools to use, will it also be of use in plant microbiology as well? Yes, for sure. I mean, so the, the approach, I mean, we're, we're like, we're spawning all kinds of new ideas of how we can, uh, you know, uh, apply these approaches. An obvious one, of course, in, in planned microbiome research is that, you know, we can look at natural isotopic ratios, but we, what we can also do, we can actually use um, substrates that have a little bit of extra isotope in them, which we call labeling, isotopic labeling. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, you can easily envision you grow a plant in like a, you know, a hermetically closed container with some CO2 that has more of the heavy isotope, which is, by, by the way, I should mention, is really there's absolutely no detriment to these isotopes. But you could then, you know, the, the, the plant fixes it, produces some sugar, and then will maybe release some compounds in, in the soil. And we could then actually see how the isotopes percolate through the community and which members of the community actually consume the particular, you know, substrate that comes directly from the plant. So we can use it in all kinds of ways, shapes, and forms. So the approach is very, very globally ap applicable to anything where you want to track one substrate through a community or through an animal or a plant, and you want to see where it goes. In, in the plant world, it sounds like that's something that ultimately could lead to uh, potentially improved yields or uh, improved uh, quality of the crops themselves. 
For sure, I mean, better understanding the microbiomes and how we could potentially influence them to, to have beneficial effects. And we, we see that a lot, right? I mean, there's a lot of knowledge about that specific microbes have a huge impact on, on yields and protection against disease and things like that. But as I said, we're still early days. There's a lot of things we need, still need to understand on how we can potentially use this. Indeed. It's, it sounds like you have a whole career's worth of uh, knowledge to acquire just yet. Oh, yeah. I would hope so. Uh, well, uh Here's an off-the-wall question for you. How does human hair fit into the equation? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, well, so with most, you know, high-end analytical methods, you always have to, they're like, they're so sensitive that any, like, small temperature change in a room where the analytical, analytical equipment is will change the outcome of the measurement. So what we have to do is to calibrate. Okay. Right? We need to make sure that we know what, we, you put in a known thing and we need to then adjust it to that level. So for the, the approach that we develop where we look at isotopic ratios, we actually also have to calibrate the approach to get very exact um, isotopic um, ratios. So we use um, human hair, which is basically pure protein as our calibration standard. So for the particular paper that I mentioned earlier, we used my human hair as the <laughs> calibration standard. I, I felt really happy when I wrote it into the method section of the manuscript. <laughs> hair was donated by MK. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, you got to have some fun. Right? Yes, 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 sometimes. Uh, well, Manuel, before our time has expired, which we're closing in on, I want to be sure to recognize the significant honor that you and your lab just won, a new innovator award from the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research, or FFAR. Uh, which funds a three-year research project uh, on linking dietary components in the microbes of human and animal guts, as we've been discussing. Tell us more about that. Um, yes, so th this is a, a really beneficial award from the FFAR. It requires an industry match, so we, I'm really forced to start talking to industry partners to actually secure matching funds, because without matching funds, there's little funding coming from the foundation. So I was very lucky that in, in that I have been able to secure some of these matching funds, but you know I'm still looking actually for partners that will join me in the endeavor of better understanding the direct linkage between microbiota and, and dietary components. I have actually already also hired a fantastic PhD student who is working on this project, so we're already starting to make progress on it. And yeah, so I'm you know very excited that, that early on in, in my career at NC State, I was able to secure this kind of a funding. Well, congratulations on that, and uh, I, I hope having this uh, program available will, will help you secure more funding. Thank you so for much. For your very important work. It's been a fascinating hour. Uh, flew by, as it always does here on Radio in Vivo. Uh, I want to thank you for making the trek from Raleigh to join us here on WCOM, and I want to wish you the best of luck for continuing success in your research career. Thank you. We've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks here on Radio En Vivo. You can check the website, radioenvivo.net, or our Facebook site for our list of upcoming shows. Join us again next time for Radio En Vivo, your link to the Triangle Science community right here on volunteer-powered WCOM-FM, Carborough, and Chapel Hill. And if you enjoy the show, we ask that you support this radio station by visiting our website, wcomfm.org, and making a secure online contribution by clicking the Donate Now button. We rely on listener support to keep your voice in the community on the air. Thanks for listening, 
and we will catch you next time.